Many consider Abraham Lincoln the greatest president in American history. He had great leadership ability and political skill. He led the country through its greatest moral and military crisis. Essentially, he saved the country from destruction and directed it towards restoration. In 1945, the aftermath of World War II left Germany and Japan devastated with shortages of food, lack of housing, transportation, and the humiliation of defeat. They are now the third and fourth largest economies in the world. In 1948, presidential election polls unanimously predicted Thomas Dewey to defeat Harry Truman. The Chicago Tribune printed their headline before all votes were counted. Truman made a shocking comeback and won re-election. In 1985, Coca-Cola reformulated its flagship soft drink and introduced New Coke in one of the biggest marketing disasters in history. In less than three months, Coke returned to the original formula with Coca-Cola Classic. Last Sunday, trailing by 12 with 44 seconds left in regulation, Texas A&M put together the most incredible comeback in NCAA tournament history to force the game into overtime. Texas A&M won the game 92-88, to to advance to the Sweet 16. The preferred sandal of the hippies has risen again. Birkenstocks are still ugly, but at least now they are cool. Oh, we all love comeback stories, don't we? Especially when they involve our team or they don't involve our team on the other end. And today we get to talk about three great comeback stories. If you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be studying together today. And we're going to be looking at some amazing comeback stories. And I hope you'll be inspired by these. You see, when we read success stories, success stories are educational. But comeback stories are inspirational. And today we begin with one of the great comebacks of all time, and that's Peter on Pentecost. I mean, if you'll go here to Acts chapter 2, let me explain to you, the book of Acts is the book that follows the stories of Jesus. It shows what happens after Jesus had died and resurrected and gone back to heaven. And on one of the most amazing scenes, we see Peter. I mean, just think about this. I mean, in the Gospels, as one of our leading political candidates would say, Simon Peter was an absolute what? Disaster. I mean, I mean, no other apostle is corrected by Jesus more than Simon Peter. He's always saying the wrong thing. In fact, in one moment, Jesus even has to call him Satan. I don't know if you picked up on that, but that is not a compliment, all right? And so Peter is on a bad run right now. When Jesus goes on trial, he denies that he even knows him. When Jesus goes to the cross, he runs. And yet now we see Peter preaching boldly. 
Go on to the next slides, if you would. Peter is preaching boldly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sermon we're going to look at in just a moment. Nine times Peter's going to bring up the resurrection of Jesus. And, And now this man who is the denier has now become the preacher. The coward is now courageous. The one who is a turncoat is about to turn history upside down. He's preaching boldly. And we might also add, it's just 50 days after the Passover. In other words, here's the significance here. If the resurrection happened or not, it happened in Jerusalem. And we see Peter preaching in Jerusalem, not 100 years later, not 1,000 years later, but just 50 days later. So, So Peter is preaching in front of the very people who know whether it's true or not. Historians call this the acid test of any historical fact. Can it be told in front of the people who know whether it's true or not? If you want to make up a lie, you don't go back and tell it where people know it to be a lie. Now, I, I was blessed to be a student at the University of Alabama from 1977 to 1981. In those four years, we won two national championships in football. Now, if, if I wanted to make up the story that I was the first-string quarterback on those teams... Please help me out here. Where would I not tell it? You'd say probably here. You know what I mean? I certainly wouldn't go back to Tuscaloosa. I might go to outer Mongolia and get by with it. But you can't tell it in front of the people who were there and saw me in the stands with my pom-pom. I mean, it, it just doesn't work that way. And so this is significant that Peter is preaching boldly just 50 days after the fact. And then eventually we see... Peter will die for this message. Now think about this. It's one thing to die for a lie. It's another thing to die for something you know to be a lie. People don't do that. The significance here on Easter Sunday is that Peter and the other apostles are willing to die for something that they know whether it's true or not. And it's one thing for you and I to get all fired up about Jesus and go into some firing country and die for our faith. That would say something, but it doesn't say anything like this. These guys know. And in my life, this is the turning point of my life, that these men are willing to die to preach the resurrection. It's an amazing fact. And then we also see this. Immediately, the Christian revolution explodes On the day we're going to look at, 3,000 people become Christians. It explodes over the next few chapters of Acts. And it explodes even to this day. Why are we meeting over 2,000 years later on this Easter Sunday? Because we believe something miraculous happened in that tomb and that Jesus resurrected. Let me say to you, there is no other legitimate explanation of what we see in Acts chapter 2 then they had witnessed the resurrected Christ. So Peter, troubled, cowardly, denier, Peter, makes an incredible comeback. Now here's what I want to say to you today. Peter made that great comeback because of the greatest comeback that ever happened, and that is Jesus on that first Easter. It changed everything. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. Let's let's look at this sermon and see what Peter had discovered. Verse 14. 
Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. You think, boy, that's a weird introduction to a sermon. Well, you got to understand that Peter is answering a question. The, the most phenomenal thing has happened to this point on the day of Pentecost. Peter and the other apostles get up to preach. People have gathered from all over the world to Jerusalem on Pentecost. They all speak different languages. And, and the apostles are able to, to speak in tongues. Obviously, here in Acts chapter 2, to speak in tongues means to speak in a language that you've never learned. And they're up speaking in these languages, and the people are so baffled, they don't know what to do. And so they say, are you guys drunk? And Peter says, no, man, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We don't start drinking that early. No, no, really what he's saying here is this. On the day of Pentecost, you fasted until 10 o'clock of anything to eat or drink. He's saying there's no way that's what's going on. And then he says, let me tell you what's really going on. And he begins to quote from the prophet Joel, who says what you're seeing is what was prophesied hundreds of years ago. Verse 17, no, verse 16. No, Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. What's he saying? This is what was predicted by Joel, that the last days are here. The days where God intervenes in history and begins to restore things are happening here in this spot. And then watch the boldness of Peter. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. He says, 50 days later, guys, I'm not telling you something you don't know about. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Oh, what a charge. The same crowd that had screamed 50 days earlier for his crucifixion is now gathered, and Peter, the scared denier, is now absurdly bold in charging them with murder. But, he says in verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus had defeated death. Then he begins to talk about their hero, David. And he quotes a psalm where David had anticipated the resurrection. And and Peter makes it plain, we're not talking about, Peter was not talking about his own, I mean, excuse me, David was not talking about his own resurrection because you can visit his tomb today. He says to them, and the grave is still full. We all know that. But Jesus' grave is empty. So what's happening here is that David has predicted that Jesus, whom he calls the Lord, would resurrect. And then in verse 36, he sums the whole thing up. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He said, I want everybody to know this. This fellow that you screamed for his crucifixion, that the Romans nailed to that cross, God has made him Lord. What's that mean? He's the master. And he's made him the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. Now imagine with me just for a second, if you're in this crowd, and you've been one of these people that made such a terrible mistake just a few days earlier, and now Peter gets up and says, you guys really, really blew it the other day. You killed the Son of God. And you go, oh my goodness. And he's resurrected from the dead. He's back. The message we expect is, he's back and he's mad. But Peter says something crazy. He says, he's back, and he wants to be your Lord and Savior. Can you imagine the roller coaster ride that these people are on? They go, that's crazy. That's unbelievable. The guy we just killed wants to save us? And then look at verse 37. They say, we want to get in on this thing. Tell us what to do. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Can you imagine? And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How do we get this right? How do we get on Jesus being Lord and Savior? And then in verse 38, Peter gives them a nice explanation of how you do it. Peter replied, repent, change your mind, change your life, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't have it right. How do we get it right? We know at this point we're terrible sinners. You know what? Peter puts it really plainly. I don't know why this is so debated. He says, it's obvious you guys believe this story. You wouldn't be asking the question. What do you need to do? You need to repent and you need to be baptized and two amazing things will happen in your life. You'll receive the forgiveness of your sins. Your past will be taken care of and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the power for your future is taken care of. What an amazing message. So what does Easter mean practically? What did it mean to Peter? First of all, to Peter, this was proof that Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Romans 1.14. He was shown to be the Son of God when God powerfully raised Jesus from the dead. Because the final proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he makes some pretty bold claims. Who else would we allow to walk in this room today and go, I want you to let me run your life. You're not running your life very well, and you'd do better if you made me the Lord of your life. I want to run your life. Who else has that right except the Son of God? And how do we know he's the Son of God? Because he resurrected from the dead. And it confronts us. Ryan Cantrell shared with me this week an an article from the Wall Street Journal of all papers about Easter and about the resurrection of Jesus. And the writer was comparing Easter and Christmas. And he was contrasting the the commercialization uh, of Christmas and how America has embraced Christmas, but Easter is not near as commercialized and not as embraced. And, And what the writer concludes, in my words, is 
the baby Jesus doesn't really confront us. We're okay with the birth of a baby. Everybody's born. But we, we don't quite know what to do with someone who's resurrected from the dead. The, the resurrection of Jesus makes claims on my life. You know, I, I've got to deal with this God-man who's resurrected from the dead who says now what you need to do is make me the Lord of your life. And the writer says this, if you come to Easter and you don't believe Jesus resurrected from the dead, that's okay. You can call him a great teacher and pick and choose which beliefs that you want to practice. But he said this in the Wall Street Journal, if you do believe this and you believe he resurrected from the dead, then you don't get the right to pick and choose. Because you believe he's the son of God. He's the Lord. And that's the realization Peter came to. It changed everything. Second, Peter believed that death is defeated. The scripture says it was impossible for death to hold on to him. This is, explains Peter's behavior. Why was he so afraid when Jesus was put on trial? Why, why did he run at the cross? Because Peter is afraid of death. But 50 days later, there is no fear. Because he knows that death has been defeated. So if he gets up and preaches this sermon, the worst thing that can happen to him now is he could die, which is the best thing that could ever happen to him because he could go and be with Jesus. Now listen to me, it was that belief that ignited this Christian revolution because you've got a group of men and women who are not afraid to die. And when people are not afraid to die, you almost, it's almost impossible to stop them. We see this all over the world today. We saw it in Brussels this week. How do you stop a group of people who don't mind dying, who don't mind strapping bombs on and blowing people up. We're finding out it's almost impossible. Now, that's, that's for evil. While we read the book of Acts over the next few weeks, we will see when people are not afraid of death for good, it brings the greatest revolution in the history of the world. It changes everything. And Peter's come to this point, so unlike just a few days before this, where he's not afraid of death at all. What else does Peter recognize? He recognizes that all can be forgiven. I mean, can you imagine if you're Peter? After what you've done, after what you said about Jesus? I mean, you read the Gospels and we get the idea, he's gone back to fishing. He thinks Jesus would never want to see my face again. And he was so wrong. Because Jesus not only restores him, but Jesus empowers him to preach this sermon. And today, if you come here on Easter and you go, man, I, I've done too much mess in my life. I mean, you're talking about a screw-up. I'm a screw-up. And there's no way God would take me back. Listen to me. Were you ever in the crowd that screamed for his crucifixion? 
And yet he took them back. All can be forgiven. Then number four, he recognizes that God's Spirit now empowers us. How do you explain the transformation in Simon Peter? There are only two good answers. Number one, he really witnessed the resurrected Christ. Number two, the Holy Spirit had been poured on him, and he had amazing power. And then for those people in this story, when God, the Father, the first person the Godhead, sent the second person of the Godhead, his son, they killed him. And now God, the Father, does the most amazing thing. He sends the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to live in the people who had just recently crucified the second person. You say, this is a crazy story, and you are right, because it's a story of grace. It's a story of God's power to change anybody, including you and me. And that brings us to our third comeback, and that is your comeback and my comeback. And I love this T.D. Jakes quotation. Your setback is a setup for your comeback. Say that with me. Your setback is a setup for your comeback. Say it like you mean it. Your setback is a setup for your comeback. That's what happened with Peter. Even Jesus predicted it. Jesus told Peter, I know you're going to blow it. And then he says in Luke chapter 22, when you've returned, when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. And he does. Listen, listen closely to me. Not only does Peter preach a good message Peter is the message. You see, if somebody corners this preacher after church and says, well, Peter, that was a sweet sermon. I love all those quotations from the Old Testament. And you did a really good job laying it out. And I think Jesus is pretty cool, but he could never change me. (laughs) You can tell that to Peter? Peter? I mean, Peter's going to take you to the side and say, man, yeah, he can't change you. Do you know what I did to him just a few days ago and he didn't give up on me? You think he would give up on you? You see, Peter's setback became the setup for him to be the perfect person to preach on grace. Who could preach the message of grace and forgiveness better than Peter? And and what I want you to see today is, is the setbacks in your life in the eyes of God, are a setup for your greatest comeback. In fact, I want to I want to interview a, a young man, Blake Ottinger. If you'd come up here with me just for a second, how many of you know Blake? I talked about Blake in last week's sermon. Blake is the guy I went to the Mount of Olives with. Me and Blake should be dead. We could have been. We could have been, couldn't we? All right, we could have been. Be careful who you hang out with. That is the lesson of that. Don't hang That's out with it. your preacher. All right. That's it. Now, I want you just to hear some of Blake's story because, guys, what we're studying today, Easter's not some sweet story about what used to happen. It's the story about what does happen. Amen? Amen. You're, you're looking at it. Okay, let me just get to the bottom line here. You grew up in a great family, but you did not surrender your life to Jesus early in life. Why didn't you? Why didn't you become a Christian early? 
Um, I think it was more just kind of the, the people that I was going to church with. It was more like dressing up, fancy, singing hymns. It really wasn't, I thought, wow, I don't really want to be a part of that. I mean. But what, tur- what turned you off about that? Uh, I had some, uh, I guess some of the older guys that were in my, not youth group, but kind of over me. They were uh, kind of doing some things. And I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, smoking cigarettes and hey, that's cool. You know, so I didn't really see that big influence. I had some uh, uh, some guys who were in the youth group and stuff that were good, and I looked up to, but never had that um, foundation. That I thought, hmm, yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to become a Christian. I think that'd be a good thing. So you, you seem to me you saw some hypocrisy, and maybe maybe hypocrisy is a strong word, but it seemed like it was just a surface, uh, outer action kind of religion. And so tell us a little bit about the, the wrong road that you started heading down. Okay, I think about was, 15 years old, I believe. Yeah, and I, I think it was more just like I didn't want to be a part of that. Plain and simple, not want to blame it on anybody else, but I just, that wasn't me. That wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I just started hanging out with some friends that weren't necessarily good for me and, uh, you, know, had, uh, you know, had some influence on me that wasn't very, very good. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Started doing some things. That what are some right. of the things you got into, Blake? I don't just know. Be we, with we were just like riding four wheelers and smoking cigarettes. Like, how is that bad, you know? As as a fifteen year old, you know, and uh, you know, we looked at some pornography on the computer and stuff like that. So that kind of had a stronghold on me, and uh, that's just um, kind of had a girlfriend at the time that I thought, you know, started experimenting, and I thought that was uh, would be something that would be, you know, good. And yeah, I'm cool. Okay. So, I mean, your story sounds very similar to lots of our stories. So something happened at age 19 that made you decide to, to give your life to Jesus. Tell us about that. Yeah. I, um, I came home from college after partying and getting on my, um, I guess, uh, wild living out. And I just realized that, uh, hey, some of these things that I'm doing are not making me happy. And uh, I'm sure some of y'all may be in that situation right now. You may be doing some stuff in your life. You're like, it's just not making me happy. I want to be uh, happy. I want to be filled with joy. And, uh, yeah. So you came home, so came baptized home. at the Hobson's Pool. <laughs> at the Hobson's Pool, that's right. Yeah. By my dad. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of brought me back into the family and kind of God's, fam- God's family and my family. So. But then three weeks later, just three, you had yeah. a setback. Yeah. Tell about that. I definitely had a setback. I went to a, a party up in Auburn. I had some, uh, some of my friends that were there. And I thought would kind of keep me accountable. And I was trying to put away some things. I was still uh, smoking cigarettes and stuff. And uh, ended up, long story short is, I, uh, somebody broke my jaw at the end of the night. And, uh, yeah, my mouth was wired shut for about five weeks. Yeah. And so was... what did you, okay, so, and again, your story is you're just innocently sitting there and he just sucker punches you. As, as far as I can remember. Uh... <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. No, no, let me get let me get it straight. Though. I was sitting in a chair. It wasn't like I was up, you know, fighting anybody or anything like that. I was literally sitting in a chair talking to one of my friends. And uh, as far as I can remember, somebody walked up and just punched me in the face. So that's uh, that's what I can remember. So what? What? Let's not go any further. Okay. Let's, let's not. So let's not. what did God do in you those next week while your mouth is wired shut? So I had five weeks where I wasn't eating, so I was doing a lot of fasting, a lot of uh, deep spiritual things. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, no, I actually, my mother had given me a Bible when I got baptized, and I started reading it for myself. 
you know, I know um, a lot of us have Bibles and everything, but have you ever read the Bible stories for yourself? You know, have you read through Genesis? Have you read through some of the books that we learned as children, like, uh, like Noah and the ark? That's a sweet little two by two going in the ark. But if you read it by yourself, for yourself, it's a pretty big story. A lot of people die. And um, no, I just I started reading the Bible for myself, read through Proverbs. And um, um, uh, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. And uh, don't be re- weary of his reproof. So at that time, I, I actually received that God was my father and that wasn't going to let me go back to the things that I was doing. And so he, uh, I, I really received that sonship at that time because I, I really truly believe that verse that God wasn't going to let me go back, that he loves me enough to say, hey, enough is enough and you can't go back to that lifestyle. And you know, I've had a chance to, to watch Blake pretty up close these last few years and he truly made a radical transformation. I could go in great details of it, but really a radical transformation. And he's a great influence for God today. So one more thing, Blake, I'd like you, if, if there's a 15-year-old sitting out there or a 19-year-old or a 55-year-old that's thinking about, is this thing real and should I give my life to Jesus, what would you say to them? Well, I'd tell them the same thing I thought in the shower before I got baptized. Uh, I would say at that time, I did not know if God was real. I could see the, the things around me. I thought, okay, this all didn't just come from nothing or we didn't evolve from apes, in my opinion, uh, at that time. You know, if, if there is a God, I want to experience it. I, I need a turnaround in my life. I, uh, like I said, I didn't really know for certain, but I wanted to find out. So uh, to somebody who's thinking about it, find out. Give him a shot. Give him a try. He's um, made an impact in my life, and I think he can make one in yours. Amen. Could you give Blake a hand? Thank you, brother. Yeah. No problem. Awesome. You know, you know, you know, we love these kind of comeback stories because um, they, they tell us. Now, now there are people that, that Blake can help and minister to because of the mess of his life. His, his setback became a setup for his comeback. And I want to say to you this morning as we begin to close this message, the same can be true in your life. You see, like I said at the beginning, a success story is educational. A comeback story is inspiring. And the truth is, all of us have something that we've had to or we need to come back from. And and, and today, you could become that inspiration. So as you come to this assembly today, and you've experienced a terrible setback in your life, maybe you come here and you're struggling with depression or you're struggling with some addictive issues with drugs or alcohol, or your marriage seems to be an absolute failure, or you're just like most of us, you're just, you've been self-absorbed in your own life and not on a mission for God. Or, or, or maybe you've just rejected God and walked away from Him and you've fallen from Him. Though you, you come to church, you know you're not walking with Him. Maybe you're living the party in life. Maybe you're, you're, you're even a part of church, but you're not, you're not serving in the church. You're not active. You're not doing what God has called you to do. Let me say to you, your setback is a setup for your comeback. One of my favorite Sundays we had here years ago is when we 
We did cardboard testimonies, and I always remember Blake's testimony. On one side of his piece of cardboard, it said, partied with the world. And when he flipped it over, it says, partying with Jesus. And today I want you to know that that can be your story. That's what this is about. And it's okay that you've fallen. In fact, when a little kid is learning how to walk, you know, what do they do? They get up for the first time and they take a couple steps and then what do they do? They fall, okay? And what do you do? Say, stop walking, you may fall. No, you, you encourage it. They may fall on their backside, they might fall on their face, but a little kid, you say, keep on trying, keep on getting up. Your setbacks are set up for your comeback. And, and so, you know, they fail and fail and fail until they're, they're walking, And you don't just allow that to happen, you encourage that to happen. And in your life, God doesn't just allow you to fail, God's okay with it. Because he knows that can be the foundation of an amazing message. It wasn't Peter's life, it isn't Blake's life, it can be in your life. So here's what I need you to do. All of you should have a copy of of Landmark Lifelines, our bulletin. There's a tear-off on the bottom And this week we call this our Easter comeback card. There's some pins in the pew in front of you. If you have your own, maybe you can use that. But we want to ask everybody today to fill this out. Members, guests, everybody, if you're you're here today, just take a moment to fill this out. Guests, if you fill this out, you're not going to have somebody knocking on your door. At best, you'll get a phone call and maybe a gift on your doorknob, all right? But, But we like to ask everyone to fill this comeback card out. Put all your information, especially if you're a guest, if a member, we're not going to need all that. And then this is the way I'm asking you to respond to this message. Just start filling the information out. And then there's four different boxes you can check, and you can check more than one for that matter. You, You might say, praise God, I've experienced a divine comeback from, I'd like to hear another story. What, what comeback have you experienced in your life that, that we can just praise God for? We're going to pray over every one of these cards this week. Or, or you might say, pray for me. I need a comeback in my life. Some of you have walked in here today not knowing exactly what was going to go on. But this message is for you. Because you're in the middle of a terrible setback. And it feels like you'll never come back. But when you add the resurrected power of Jesus... When you had the Holy Spirit, it's possible. So if you've had a, a setback and you need a comeback, there, there's a, an area in the back for prayer requests. Just write down what you want us to pray for. We're not going to pray publicly about it today. We're going to pray privately about it. And, and then you might check the box that says, call me. I, I want to talk to somebody about this. And we'll have one of our leaders of this church to just call you in a very non-threatening way and say, can we talk to you and pray about this? whatever might be on your heart. And then there might be somebody like those 3,000 people on Pentecost who are so struck by this message of Jesus that you say, baptize me. I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I'm ready to turn to him and be baptized. So be filling that out. While you're filling that out, let me invite all the men to go to the tables that are gonna serve the Lord's Supper to us today. If all of you will go, There'll be a basket on each table for you to put this comeback card on. And we want you to put the card in that basket. They're bringing the baskets right now. And um, then when you go to the table, 
there's going to be some men to serve you the bread and the wine. And, and they're going to say to you, this is the bread broken for you. This is the blood given for you. Look them in the eyes. Let it be a significant moment for you. But fill this card out and prepare in just a moment to come and to take communion. If you've made a decision today that you want to be baptized, then you meet me on the front row. And that can happen right now. I want to remind you, before we go to the tables, of an awesome story in Luke chapter 24, where after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are walking with him. They don't recognize him. For some reason, their eyes are blinded until this moment. When Jesus was at the table with them, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and he began to give it to them, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And today, as you go to one of these tables, my invitation to you is that as you take the bread and you take the cup, may your eyes be opened to the reality of Jesus, possibly like no other time in your life. Because let's say it again, we love comeback stories, especially our own. There's lots of tables to go to, take your card, partake of the emblems, and recognize Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest comeback of all time. We thank you so much for Jesus and that he came and he lived that perfect life and he died. But God, he's not a dead savior. He's not like David was where we could go to his tomb and see his bones. He is alive in the tomb is empty. And that's not just some theoretical, theological point. It means that the same comeback power is available in our lives. And so as we partake of his body and his blood, may our eyes be open to his reality and what he can mean for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.